0: there's a natural pace to doing things if you're going to do them well and if you want to be at the other end of that drill or that scalpel how fast do you want that dentist to have reached that point of the procedure they're doing for you
1: welcome back to the dental head start podcast my name is graham and this week i'm joined by misog habibi as someone who is early on in their career implant dentistry is something that i definitely want to learn more about and I asked Misog some questions around what procedures and what things we should be looking to learn in our early careers and how that would set us up better to be ready to place implants or even taking a course. You can really hear Misog's passion for teaching and, and learning through this podcast. And even what he was preaching was really great to hear. Misog is an extremely humble guy. He has so many credentials and so much experience as a dentist. And with all he's set up in the Implant Institute, he has really changed the way that implantology can be learned. I hope you enjoy this chat between Misog and I. Welcome back to the Dental Headstart Podcast. My name is Graeme Pearson, and today I am joined by Dr. Misog Habibi. Misog, welcome to the podcast.
0: Hi, Graham. How are you doing?
1: Good, good. Thanks for joining today.
0: Thank you. Thanks for having me on.
1: Yeah, of course. And uh, I'm really excited for a conversation today. We have a lot to get through. I'm just going to give the audience a little bit of an idea of what you do. And if I miss anything, uh, will you let me know? Sure, I'll try. Awesome. Uh, So, uh, Misog, you're uh, an Australian program director of the Cambridge Academy of Dental Implantology's accredited PG Certain PG Dip program. You're the director of the Implant Institute. You're a tutor of the Master of Oral Implantology uh, students. You tutor them uh, in the Frankfurt University in Germany. You also serve as an adjunct professor, uh, a senior lecturer at the university. senior
0: lecturer, yeah. I mean, you know, in Australia, uh, we're careful with using the word professor. Maybe in North America, uh, <laughs> it gets it's a little serious. different, yeah, is it? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, ad, uh, adjunct senior lecturer, yeah.
1: Thank you for that. Uh, and you're also the principal dentist of complete implant and sedation dentistry. That's correct. How did I do anything I
0: missed? I think that's the crux of it. That's fantastic.
1: That's the correct. Awesome. Awesome. Well, uh, we're super happy to have you on. Um, so I guess before I start, I just have one question for you. Are you more of a teacher or a learner by nature?
0: That's an interesting question. I mean, uh, for me, I think they, they've they happened to go hand in hand in, in much of my journey. Um, you know, it's that, that old adage that if you, you know, if you stop learning, you know, (laughs) so, uh, you know, I think we're always learning and, um, and, you know, in order to not fall back, we need to be progressing, you know? So there's no such thing as just sort of sitting stagnant and everything being okay. Uh, we need to constantly, uh, learn almost to keep, you know, the level of, um, I guess, uh, competency uh, that we have uh, because knowledge is always evolving and so on. And also, obviously, you know, life is not so interesting if we're, if we're not learning all the time. Yeah. But in terms of the uh, teaching side of things, I think that's just uh, something that I've always enjoyed doing. Uh, I enjoy connecting with colleagues and, you know, sharing uh, skills and knowledge. So, you know, over the years, as, as I've learned more for myself, you know, I've been, you um, You know privileged to be able to also participate in in sharing some of that so I think yeah it's a dual thing
1: Mm. and I guess to be a teacher you have to have a pretty good idea about what you're what you're teaching and preaching so
0: can't be too far behind on, on the knowledge that's right
1: yeah well said uh so let's let's start at the beginning what was your early life like and and how did that kind of shape you or influence you to want to become a
0: dentist um that's, that's a big question. Yeah. Um, I guess, you know, I've got, everyone's got an interesting story. Uh, mine, you know, it's a little bit, uh, a little bit out of the box in that, um, you know, I've had a very international sort of life as a, as a child, uh, I lived in a few different countries and basically, I'm originally Persian. So I was, well, I am Persian, which means I was born in Iran and, um, Basically, when I was a young child, my family, after the revolution that had taken place there and some of the troubles that ensued, uh, fled that country as refugees. So within the first few years of life, um, you know, I basically lived in several countries um, as, you know, as a refugee until we settled in a given place um, and spoke several languages. So first, you know, it was Persian and then it was Urdu because we fled into Pakistan. And uh, then we were processed through Austria. So the next year of schooling was in German. And uh, we eventually settled here. Uh, yeah. So we, were, we got a visa to go to the United States. And that's probably where my mixed up accent, which some people think is Canadian as a result that, uh, it comes from You
1: do have a hint of a North American that's in there. Right. Yeah, I noticed yeah. that.
0: Yeah, so we lived in the States for a few years. And then um, eventually, more as, you know, standard migrants, my, my parents decided to move to Australia. And uh, hence, uh, you know, probably an international accent. Um, But how did that influence maybe my career? I think there is probably a little bit of, um, you know, when when you come from a background that has had instability or instability in it, and you see your parents uh, toil and struggle and go through all these great efforts, which now I appreciate so much, you know, uh, to to facilitate, you know, the life they do for you, you think, you know, I want to sort of make a life that is uh, predictable and stable to some degree. And so, you know, I, I had uh, a lot of interest in the arts and even the performing arts. But yeah, but, uh you know, when I was putting together my options, I was like, no, I want to guaranteed a job, (laughs) I wanted to have a secure and and good income, you know, that can support a family without much stress and all that. So it sort of uh, brought down my options a little bit. And uh, yeah, but uh, I think uh, also, you know, in that part of the world, there is a lot of, you know, in my background, people do put, uh, I guess, importance and, you know, value on on health professions as well. So maybe subconsciously, that might have, Influenced me a little bit. But of course, as a teenager, uh when you're making some of those decisions for university and that you're very strong-minded and uh you believe that you're making all your decisions very independently. <laughs> so yeah. So uh yeah, it was around year eleven of school, I think, that uh I recall I was in a physics class and I came to this decision that I, I wanted to be a dentist. And um, you know, putting together these ideas that I just shared with you, but also, you know, I was really enjoying uh, sciences, uh, health sciences, and, um, and I love doing, you know, things with my hands, art and, and, and things, you know, woodwork. So I thought this might be a really good marriage um, of, you know, art and, and science, which, which it is. And uh, of course, my physics teacher said, no, you, you won't study hard enough to be a dentist. <laughs> so that's the story.
1: <laughs> Very cool. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. I mean, I could use your, your woodworking skills here in the house today. Honestly, <laughs> it's so hard when we're in high school to know what a career in dentistry or any other health profession, like what you're saying, what it's going to be like yet we have to choose. And, and yeah, I mean, you, our parents do definitely have a big impact on kind of what we decide as well.
0: And it's a big, big decision, you know. Um, when I look back, I'm I'm so happy with the decision that I made. But I think how is you know pretty much you know a child is just like uh, you know supposed to make these uh, life uh, changing decisions. And uh, you know, I, I encourage uh, my kids to just think that you know whatever they decide is not a is not set in stone. You know, there's so many pathways to learn. Your uh, interest and and sort of move along and, and find a find a path. Uh, so, but yeah, at that time as well, it was an undergraduate program. We we had to enter science, which was you know it, it wasn't hard to get into the science program, and then depending on your grades in the first year of science, you could apply for dentistry. Um, and yeah, to decide at that age to enter a profession like dentistry in particular, which is such a specific, you know. Uh, focal focal and localized sort of focus i guess uh is quite a quite a big decision to make but yeah it seems to have worked out
1: yeah absolutely uh yeah so you you, you've really made your decision in a physics class that really (laughs) snowballed into what became of you and and um so that was kind of when you decide to do dentistry how was dental school for you how did you find it
0: Dental school was, was pretty tough. Um, I think, you know, as it should be in terms of, I guess, how much we have to learn. But in those years, uh, especially uh, the program at the University of Western Australia where I went, uh, was particularly intense. Uh, you know, a lot of things have changed since then. Um, the way things are administered have improved a lot. You know, how, how students are looked after and, and their mental uh, health and everything is, is thought about <laughs> you know in those days it was uh, you basically you know it was a little bit of an old uh, boys private boys school mentality you know uh, and you just had to find your way in there and um, and in terms of the content a lot of the sciences that we had to study we would study alongside the major of that science so for example my biochem class would be with biochem majors and, And with with all of the sciences, you know, whereas now it's more, uh, you know, with a medical focus, which is a lot more sensible and uh, more applicable and obviously a little less intense in terms of the detail of that science that you have to go into. So we did find that myself and my colleagues, you know, we all did find it uh, very difficult to get through, especially the first uh, two, three years. Uh, Once we got into more of the clinical side of things, um, I certainly enjoyed that a lot more and I found. I could perform uh, better as well on the clinical side uh, because we just had so much theory to get through when it was in, in the basic sciences. And of course, at the time, you you wonder, you know, is, 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 is this even applicable? Uh, but over the years, you do see how it all fits together. But, you know, having said that, I thoroughly enjoyed my time. You know, I enjoyed being with the friends that I was with. And, you know, adversities always have, you know, their victories, you know, and, uh and it was like that. It was the most fun period of my life as well. So,
1: mm, yeah, it's it's the friends you remember that that keep you going. Hey, and and with the courses, the the content you learn, yeah, it's not applicable. But it's really the skills that you learn from uh, working through these hard subjects that kind of give you the the skills in real life, not necessarily the. Chemical reaction, and acid-base reaction. Right. You know That's what right. I mean?
0: <laughs> yeah, and just just familiarizing with that language. So you know, later on, like right now, I'm involved in research as well, which wasn't part of the plan in my career originally. But you know, now when you pick up articles and you read them, and, and you're thinking about maybe carrying out some sort of experiment, or thinking how to analyze, or be critically analytical of a given situation or something you're reading, it's all of that foundation. You know, obviously. That has, has prepared your mind for that sort of thing. So, uh, yeah,
1: yeah, very cool. Uh, and and I really want to talk to you about some of that research. But I, I have a couple other questions that I that I want to get through with you. So, Misog, what was your first job like? Uh, did you have any uh, good or bad experiences with it?
0: Uh, my first job, I think, um, uh, I definitely enjoyed, and I learned a lot from. Um, I realized in the last couple of years of university uh, that I was really interested in sort of surgical dentistry and as well as, as well as fixed pros. And I guess that sort of fits together in what I'm doing at the moment, but with implantology. but at that time I wanted to make sure to be in a situation where I can, you know, dive into the deep end and have to develop some of these skills and, um, to have someone around that might be helpful for that, but also to be in a, you know, geographical situation where, where that would be needed of me. Um, And so I decided to move to a country town outside of Perth called Katanning. And uh, yeah, I spent my first year there and, uh, you know, the first year of work is always, you know, a huge, huge, huge learning curve. Um, and it certainly was there, especially being able to deal with some of the extra things that you get to say in a country practice like that, you know, traumas, traumas that happen on the farms and present to the hospital. Well, you know, as long as the jaw didn't need fixation or was broken, like if it was soft tissue stuff or dental stuff, you'd have to deal with it. Um, and uh, and wisdom teeth surgeries and, you know, difficult extractions and things like that. Um, I managed to start of course, level by level, but I, I managed to start developing some of those skills early and seeing a lot of patients. So uh, so that was really handy. And I enjoyed being out of the, uh, the lifestyle of, you know, what we're used to in the city and uh, you know, connecting with people in the country and, and the quiet of the environment, you know, driving around staring at sheep and <laughs> and wheat farms. Yeah, I very much enjoyed that. And if, you know, if I was to, for some reason with my family, live in the country in that sort of scenario, I'd have no hesitation. Um, you know, I'm not attracted to big city life any more than country life, but yeah, we did eventually move back to the city and gradually worked for a few practices, continued honing some of those skills.
1: Yeah, right. And I think that's what the part you said about there's a steep learning curve in your first year. I think that's really reassuring for a lot of our listeners because I know a lot of them are going to be going through the, the same thing. And especially with COVID impacting our, our education, it, this, the learning curve might be steeper, but it's good to know that everyone goes through that anyways.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, like, I think all the uh, all the listeners should take heart in that, you know, all of us have to go through that. Uh, of course, COVID presents its own challenges, but, you know, the skills that we gain in dental school and, you know, the number of cases of certain things that we do, it really only sets us up just to sort of be familiar enough to start, you know. So, you know, calling on mentorship and being in the right environment to to learn things and I think just continually learning uh, not to be overwhelmed by how big the task seems to be but you know all of us learn just one step at a time and you just gradually build those uh, building blocks keep building on each other and then all of a sudden you realize oh I didn't realize I was here or that you know I'd be at this point but it was all little by little so yeah for sure
1: I find that so interesting. So you really looked long term, you thought long term when you're looking at your first job, you do a lot of really complex uh, implant rehabilitation. Did you try and find a job in your first year that would, like you were saying, you wanted to find jobs that do surgery, like complex extractions, wisdom teeth, like you were actively searching for something like that?
0: I was actively searching for uh, some surgical experience, just you know, for wisdom teeth and Getting my hands busy with suturing and raising flaps and things. I'm also really interested in fixed prosthodontics. So you know, to cut, uh, you know, I haven't cut a bridge in many years, but to cut bridge work and you know, uh, to deal with cases that have you know require alteration of vertical dimension and things like that. That you know, when you have a lot of complex uh, casework around and there's only limited uh, clinicians available, as long as you're obviously taking within the realm of what you're able to do step-by-step, step, um, you know, you, you can develop those skills. But, yeah, I was thinking of those in light of the long term. I didn't have implantology in mind at all. Uh, I just wanted to be able to do different things in dentistry. And um, I think where, where people sort of focus more on details of money or, you know, some of the gl- more glam side of things. Um, I think it may be a distraction from where you're best uh, to focus your energies in the early years to basically learn, even dealing with patients. You know, how, how do we communicate with patients? Things like that. If you're in an environment where you can learn these things, as long as you're obviously fairly uh, compensated for your work and you have good people around, I think that that's more important than having that 100% full book versus the 80% full book or having that whatever percent versus a couple of percent lower under commission.
1: That's well said. Yeah, looking for a job that really fits what you want to do, not necessarily money driven.
0: I mean, hopefully most good employers should should be fair in how they piss, uh the dentist anyway, you know, uh, but, but it shouldn't be our, our focus, I don't think
1: what kind of successes or failures did you find you had within those first couple years uh you know within your first couple years of working
0: yeah um your your failures uh not just in the first couple of years but over your career uh they certainly stick with you you know things that you could have done better um or you know mistakes that you made certainly and as they should <laughs> for, you know, and reorient uh, your thinking considerably. Um, I I think in that first year, I don't recall any major mishaps or anything like that. Um, I think it was certainly a good learning experience and being able to cut a lot of fixed restorative work and do a lot of wisdom teeth and so on. I mean, my, my, uh, my mentor and, and the principal of that practice would still do the more complicated so wisdom teeth cases i remember the very first one that i did by the end of the procedure it all had gone so beautifully uh, i think probably mesioangular lower age or something and um but by the time it came to suturing i was so physically and mentally spent that even though it had gone smoothly i was like uh my, my hands were shaking going in with the suture you know, and I put a couple in, and then I asked them to come in and finish. And I realized, wow, I have expended so much energy here that I that I've run out of it before the end of the procedure. You know, um, no, but uh, and it it's also you know in the country practices. Usually, it's probably a more forgiving audience as well. You know, if you're good to people and you're you're doing well by them. They're not going to, you know, make a fuss about, you know, the corner of something being less or more translucent or something, you know. <laughs> so, no, that that was good. Uh, but certainly, you know, over the years, a couple of small mishaps, as in, you know, damaging a bit of tissue somewhere or, you know, they really lock into your mindset. And every surgery that you, you do after that, those dangers are very much in your visual thinking. So I guess the challenge uh, in, on that side of things is to be able to do that with as making as few mistakes as possible, you know, cause we all learn from mistakes, but especially these days, I think there's so much more education out there, so much more mentorship and that sort of thing that uh, we, uh, we can approach everything with so much more thorough, background knowledge and research than that we did, say, 20 years ago. But no, it was a very positive period from what I call like it. I didn't find it. I find it physically exhausting. I remember coming home in those early years and just collapsing, you know, on the floor just from fatigue. Uh, but, but in terms of mentally and emotionally, I, I did find it in, enjoyable and stimulating
1: <laughs> mm, no that's really good to hear and it sounded like you had a really good mentor who's around that you were able to kind of push your limits a little bit and knew, know that you have someone there who can maybe bail you out of a of an extraction gone pear-shaped or something yeah, like that yeah
0: that, that it's good to have someone like that around and also like to you know when it's a busy say country practice like that there's no time to rely on that person so much but you know that they're there you know and and you can um, you can quickly discuss something together um i think it's good to take on things in a staged manner where where we can be bailed out if necessary but we're not practicing with the sort of backup of it's okay i'll be bailed out you know <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, very I mean, different. I mean, yeah, I've seen some practices like that. And uh, the mindset that sort of comes out, you sort of think, okay, you know, but that's that's not best by the patient, <laughs> you know. <what> I mean? <laughs> if you're relying on a bailout, uh, or just starting and then you know, when things don't go well it'll be taken over, then maybe you shouldn't be doing that. <laughs>
1: Yeah, that's really well said. And yeah, not, not best, uh, you're not thinking about the patient in that sense either, hey, eh?
0: That's right, that's right. That, that, that should always obviously come from, as long as we're doing that, you know, uh, we're always going to do well. Uh, at the end of the day.
2: <laughs> as dentists and dental students, we all have difficult days. You may experience workplace or training demands that have a direct impact on your physical, emotional and psychological health and well-being. This is exactly what dental practitioner support is for. It's a completely confidential and independently run service that's funded by the Dental Board of Australia in an effort to support practitioners and dental students right across the country. Sometimes people call just at the end of a long day to debrief, but sometimes they call because there's more challenging things going on.
1: So, uh, Misog, you do a lot of IV sedation, complex implant surgery, and general dentistry, you do really well to cap off. Did you feel you wanted to hone your skills into a specific niche rather than keeping your skills broad?
0: Um, When it came to sort of the sedation side of things, um, by that stage of my career, I'd been working a few years. And it so happened that, you know, that sort of, you know, surgical path that I was uh, mentioning to you. It sort of became a a skill that practices I was working at were were calling on. And I'd worked for a couple of large group practices over there in New South Wales. And uh, it's sort of, I was spending about half my time doing, say, wisdom teeth lists. And um, that was one thing where I thought, you know, understanding sedation would be a good adjunct to this service. And the other thing that uh, took me in that direction, I actually had a back injury after a car accident. And, um, and for, for a year or two, I wasn't even sure what I'd be doing from a clinical side, of, you know, if anything. So uh, I thought sedation would, would add, I guess, another uh, tool in the toolbox where if I cannot practice clinical dentistry the same way, I may be able to do something else within dentistry that be less physically uh, challenging for you know my neck and back and the problems that I was having at the time. So uh, so it was sort of a little bit of everything that I decided to pursue education and sedation, and uh, that certainly became it just became so much a part of my daily practice and moving forward uh, that I couldn't imagine my own career without that. Um, and uh, the first little while I was providing sedations for other, other clinicians, you know, going around and that, that was another opportunity to sort of immerse in something before that skill sort of fizzles away, you know, uh, because it's so different to dentistry, you know, thinking about, um, you know, th- that side of anesthesia and safety and, and life uh, rather than, than the mouth. Um, and yeah, so I can't remember where the question started, but that's how sedation kind of fit into my, to my workflow. Um, and then the whole surgery and sedation focus, it, it sort of kept growing together. And implants didn't come near the beginning of that journey. You know, I was still doing some other fixed pros and a lot of uh, extractions and wisdom teeth and things like that. And, but now I felt like if I entered the realm of implants, um, I would hopefully have uh, the skills, you know, just manual skills, I mean to be able to start to put some of that into action as I learn, you know, and that's, that's just one way of doing it. Of course. I mean, everyone's got a different path, but that was my thinking at the time. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I would say your path is very unique in that sense. Uh, I can't say there's many people doing IV sedation. (laughs) So that in itself is an extremely unique skill. And, and the fact that you've really covered your bases in terms of you've already, you know, you were talking about how you love doing fixed work and you wanted to do a lot of that and doing a lot of wisdom teeth, you've already done a lot of surgery. And it's like the only, the only reasonable, next thing that's doing implant surgery. So no, that's, that's so great. And and you really have found a, a, you know, a specific niche in what you do. Um, You're clearly passionate about it, both surgery and implantology. Uh, You've talked about how you developed your skills. Um, What is it like? um, What is it like going from a, you know, doing a single implant or an implant bridge to maybe an all on four how, how is that how is that different what's the what's the skill jump in that
0: there's just uh, so many levels of things involved and i think um you know of course you know i've uh, i've done that sort of work for quite a number of years and a, a lot of cases and over the years you still develop little you know nuances that you that you improve on and things that you learn so it's really hard to enter that type of uh, treatment uh, modality, for example, of like, say, full arch work, um, with, with really the full understanding uh, that I found that I developed over the years. And um, these days, sometimes I find, because there's more training out there, there's more course, there are more courses, uh, and there's a little bit of a... I don't know, it's like the shiny new thing, you know, that's there. Um, sometimes I feel people delve into it a little bit too early without really understanding all the aspects of what's involved um, and also without sufficient uh, clinical actual skill to deal with the challenges that come with cases like that. And then many times when those challenges are not being presented or those are not being addressed, I feel the operator can be a little bit blind to the fact that they are actually there. They're just not understanding that those challenges are there or that those problems need to be addressed, you know. So, uh, yeah, I think it is uh, it is actually a big step. But if, if you're someone who's uh, doing learning implants and doing implants well and has also been doing, say, full mouth rehab from a restorative perspective, you know, with denture and partial denture cases and with uh, fixed prostodontics and dealing with cases of vertical dimension change um, and all the, all the things that are involved in cases like that, then, of course, when you're doing uh, implants and gaining skills for implants and, and bone and tissue augmentation and things, then it's a very natural fit, you know. Whereas uh, uh, if we're just going to say a – uh, weekend course and we learn to do some guided surgery punch a hole through a guide and put an implant through there and then go from there to full arch cases which I see some colleagues do it's a recipe for a lot of things not going well for the patient in the long run
1: now it's, that's really interesting insight yeah so it's a it's really is a a, a full skill set that you need
0: yeah i think i I see it quite at another level and i wonder if all clinicians that are doing it do see it that way uh but uh, in my thinking all the other elements of implantology we need to be experienced with in order to go into the the full arch work so we can apply all those elements to the way that we diagnose plan do surgeries do prosthetics so that the the results can be predictable uh for our own benefit, in terms of you know when cases are big and something goes wrong, it's a stressful process, you know, the cost involved and dealing with a patient that's unhappy, or even if the, if you realize that something's not as good as it should be, it's it's not a good feeling, you know. Uh, but the more we can be learning all these aspects of dentistry and bringing them together in the way we approach a treatment plan or a surgery, then we haven't left holes in our thinking that will lead to these problems. It's a very philosophical approach, I guess. I'm not really talking about dentistry, but <laughs>
1: yeah. Oh, I love it. Hey, you're so well-spoken as well. No, I like <laughs> preach. <laughs>
0: <laughs> preach well.
1: Yeah, so, I, and I think that, you, you know, you spoke a lot about education there and learning. And I think that really seg- segues well into our, my next question. And I kind of want you to tell me about what the Implant Institute is and, and what it aims to provide to dentists.
0: Sure. Yeah. um, Yeah. In terms of, uh, you know, training and education in one way or another, over the years, after I was working in this field for for a handful of years, I started to be involved in doing training courses, some of which, you know, for companies or organizations, and some of which were uh, for my own institute that I started to build. Um, And after doing that for a few years, I felt like I wasn't necessarily um, providing something that was really unique and necessary in the market. Um, you know, for a while I thought I was, but then you know, with anything, when something's done, some other people do it, and then you know, it's sort of. And I'm not a very, uh, you know, competitive, you know, person at heart. You know, I'm not trying to do things because someone else is doing it or. You know, and in fact, I do the opposite. I say, oh, someone else is doing that now, so I'll just stop doing it, <laughs> you know. So, <laughs> so there's no need. Uh, but what happened uh, with, the, with the Implant Institute is, so, you know, I was going with some smaller things over the years, um, and I, I stopped doing some of my larger programs. But then um, I was able to, you know, quite fortuitously, and, you know, things aligned Uh, sort of uh, developed into this partnership with Cambridge Academy of uh, Dental Implantology in the UK. And I think uh, our partnership and what we're able to provide in terms of implant education um, in the Australia Australia Pacific region is certainly very unique in that, you know, we're offering these uh, postgraduate certificate, postgraduate diploma programs uh, in dental implants Um, that are accredited through uh, the UK uh, authorities. Um, And it allows uh, dentists to know that they're not just learning something or cramming through something on a weekend or two, but they're actually doing uh, didactic programs that are quality controlled, uh, that are evidence-based, and that challenge them to learn more than what they usually do when they go to certain courses. And as a result, uh, you know, hopefully much better outcomes for the dentists and the patients. And of course, it's great to also come out with, with an award to, to reflect the learning that you've been doing, whether it be a PG-CERT or a PG-DIP.
1: So, missog I guess I want to talk a little bit more specifics about the Implant Institute. You provide the PG-CERT and PG-DIP program um, through the is it the Cambridge University?
0: It's not the university. Uh, well, the director of Cambridge Academy is actually faculty at Cambridge University. But, um, but no, it's actually an independent organization in, in Cambridge. So Cambridge Academy of Dental Implantology uh, is a tertiary education provider in the UK uh, that, whose programs have been accredited by, by the uh, postgraduate awarding body, uh, Eduqual to uh, you know at the postgraduate certificate and postgraduate diploma levels so in terms of getting that accreditation and the quality of the evidence-based program the didactic nature of the program how things are conducted how things are assessed and administered it really has to match university standards and uh, and you know and you know i i i would go out there and say like you know we're certainly not lacking in that regard maybe better than Uh, a lot of sort of, uh, I would hope, um, postgraduate university courses in the area of implants in terms of how much people can get out of it in terms of learning outcomes. Um, So that's, uh, you know, being able to uh, sort of be uh, on faculty with Cambridge uh, Academy uh, as the Australian program director and and, uh, deputy chief examiner allows me to be able to conduct the program here in Australia. And you know uh, the Implant Institute. I guess that's become that partnership has been the the our flagship offering, I guess. Uh, but but we have other sort of short courses and things like that that you know sometimes uh, we're running at various points of the year. And and now Cambridge uh, Academy, uh, we've also got a partnership with uh, Aston University in Birmingham. Which uh, which was actually awarded by the Guardian uh, UK University of the Year last year. So they're really uh, getting a lot of good outcomes. Um, they now offer a one year extension program from RPG Dip as a master Master of Science in Advanced uh, Dental Implantology. So this is totally unique now for for the Australia region in that you know uh, we're able to offer a pathway for a dentist to come in and exit either with a PG cert or a PG dip or masters uh, depending on their level of, I guess uh, commitment commitments is one thing because it does take work. You know, it's not like going to a course and watching falling asleep and going home, (laughs) you know, it does, it does take work, but also the level of maybe skills and expertise that they come in. So someone that might be a couple of years out of uni would probably want to just do the PG cert beyond that is probably not really where they're at just yet you know whereas someone that comes in with good implant experience maybe and uh you know the pg dip level formalizes and really consolidates a lot of what they know and brings in other things they they haven't thought about but then gives them opportunity to progress maybe do a research project and uh and earn a master's degree as well so that's really exciting that we're able to offer that this year and um Be interesting to see how uh, Australian dentists um, sort of respond to that in in the coming years.
1: Yeah, and it's it's really cool. You're bringing this world class education to Australia, and I think it's amazing. Um, And I think you actually partly answered one of my next questions, which is relating to how you know where do these. Uh, courses fit into a dentist education like at what point and you're saying the pg cert is you know after a couple of years pg dip is more if you've placed more implants and have a bit more experience what benefits do you feel like these programs have over the weekend warrior courses or going to an overseas course where you place 20 implants over a week how does that all fit in
0: um, look, obviously my answer is gonna be a little biased, but uh you know, it's not just because I'm involved in in, in delivering this program. Uh, I guess I'm involved in delivering this program because this is the sort of program that I believe in delivering. Do you know what I mean? Uh, because there are a lot of these uh good 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 terminology, we can warrior courses. And I must say, you know, um as I mentor different colleagues and come across different things that are being done. Um, on patients and so on. I realized that people can come out of uh, these short courses and have a false sense of confidence or understanding about what they know, which really is a reflection of how much they or we, you know, don't know. And, um, so, you know, a case is being approached, you know, with very limited tools, uh, both practically as well as uh, knowledge wise because how much can one learn in a weekend or even in six weekends even in uh, some of the courses that are a few week weekend modules and so on. Uh, of course fantastic is learning by all means and I'm not at all trashing that at all but in terms of then going to that next level and what we think we know, you know we just need to be conscious that, we, we should learn at each stage and practice at that stage as we as we develop our knowledge and skills. So I do think, you know, in the right mindset, weekend courses and all of these things are fantastic because you go and you might pick up some more things and, you know, uh, but with the mindset that, oh, I've gone to that course. Now I can do that stuff. I think that that can be a little dangerous. And uh, same with, you know, overseas programs. Um, you know, let's say that you you've got certain knowledge and experience and you do these types of grafts but you you haven't yet done this uh, technique of bone graft whereas you've done the others so you'll go to that course to get a bit more exposure to that technique and do some hands-on like that can be invaluable but but unfortunately I think a lot of people go all right if I go to you know country such and such I can place this many implants and do these many sinus lifts and come out the other end of that week You know, uh, and that just, it just doesn't make sense. And you see it, you see it in, you know, the way that cases are approached after that. So I know some people that uh, come to our courses, uh, have that, have that mindset already. You know, they say, actually, I've been waiting for something that is consolidated, didactic, step-by-step where I need to learn theory. I need to learn things that I'm going to do. Um, Whereas others sometimes approach me and they say, well, I've done this course or I've done, you know, 10 sinus lifts in in the country, another country. Do I still have to do those clinical requirements or do I still, do I get any credits? I said, no, unfortunately. And I I tell them that, and you will realize that as you're doing the course, you will reorient your thinking, you know? Uh, And sometimes people come to some of our short courses that I give and we teach some advanced things in some of those things, but I, what I try to convey is not that you come, you've, you've learned some of these things that you can go and do it. I'm hoping that what the course will convey when it's a more advanced course is the sense that, Oh, okay, this is not straightforward, you know, and, and maybe I'll just take this piece and that piece out of it and come back and learn more, you know? Um, so, you know, I, going on a little bit about this point here, but, you know, yeah, (laughs) I really believe in, uh, you know, treating our colleagues with, uh, with respect for their intelligence, you know, because some courses you go in and it, it can be a little bit almost self protective from the, from the teachers in terms of, this is what we do. That's what you do. You know, don't overstep these bounds and you can learn that bit, but refer that bit to me and so on that that's not the path that we're taking. We're teaching very openly, but it's with a way of learning to be self-critical and understanding your limits and everything that you learn in a lecture or in a workshop doesn't have to be something you have to go and try and do. It should only sort of form part of the overall picture that then alters your diagnostics. You, know? you might learn a surgical procedure uh, just in hands-on, and now you understand when that surgery might be necessary even if you don't have the skills or the experience to go and perform. it, So it it makes us better clinicians by even being exposed to things that we may not necessarily be needing to perform in our practices.
1: Mm, Really well said. Yeah, I think that that sums up. That question really, really well, and I think that's probably what a lot of people think when when thinking structured education over, you know, short term courses. And I think, yeah, you summed that up really well, Muzak. Thank you. <laughs> Thank
0: you. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, it's an important it's an important uh, distinction, you know, because there's so much uh, educational offerings out there, and all of it has value for sure. But we we need to think about where we're trying to go and what we want to try and achieve out of the program, and you know. Obviously, the quality and the safety with which we want to practice, we want that to be reflected in our education.
1: Yeah, really well said.
2: The more you learn about orthodontics, the more you see it applying to almost every case. It might not always be necessary, but it's almost always an option. So then you think, I want to do aligners for my patients, and your challenge is to learn how to do that to a high standard. But once you've learned that, many people find that the challenge then is how do you actually make that work within your practice? How do you make this efficient and therefore profitable enough for you to be able to provide that to your patients in private practice? There's two people I think about when I think about aligners and then practice management. That's Dr. Jeff Hall and Dr. Jesse Green. And now they've come together to create Clear Aligner Excellence, their new education platform that is aiming to solve both of these problems for you in your practice while also giving you huge discounts off the major aligner therapy companies. Over the next six years, aligner therapy is forecast to increase by 28%. This is a huge opportunity. Take it with both hands. ClearEx.com.au.
1: So this next little part, uh, we're looking for some specific tips or advice, okay? Um, what kind of mistakes do you see younger younger dentists, newer grads making?
0: Uh, in implantology or in, like, dental practice, In In
1: general. You can even think of, you know, reflect on yourself if you like.
0: If I, if I say in terms of when I'm teaching uh, in the field of implants, uh, a mistake that I often feel Not necessarily younger, to be honest. Like, uh, it depends on mindset, you know, like (laughs) it depends on the mindset of the practitioner. But mistakes that I often uh, find being made relate to this idea of assuming that one has a certain level of expertise that one doesn't, you know. So um, approaching learning maybe with a slightly closed mindset rather than with an open one that picks up a lot that sees, sees the small things that one doesn't know or, or, and that sort of thing. And also people that uh, when they go into the shorter programs, maybe especially guided surgery courses for implants and that, and come out and think, oh, well, now I can plan it on a computer, and make a guide, so I don't need to be a good surgeon or I don't need to be a good uh, dentist, you know, because it's a guide and they can just go through there. But there's so many elements that, that uh, those practitioners are missing and it can be a little bit... Dangerous. So I see, you know, guided surgery as as one tool uh, in our toolbox uh, and, you know, I would say better applied when one is surgically experienced and then used to make a particular case more accurate or more quick rather than being the tool by which we can perform implants because that implies a lot of gaps (laughs) in the system. Uh, so that's where the most common mistake that I see uh, in implants is that side of things, having some basic training, especially on guided surgery, and then just just throwing it out at all your cases and thinking that that's how they should be uh, approached. And in implants, that might mean that people have you know insufficient envelopes of bone or soft tissue around their implants or other uh, prosthetic elements are not really been have not been considered properly because we found that exact spot of bone that we could squeeze an implant to if we punch it through a hole and hope that it's accurate you know that in implants that's probably the biggest problem in, in sort of <laughs> I guess approach of dentists um, and the other would be to maybe want to take bigger steps than we need to I think it's really good to be ambitious for for our learning if we're willing to put the hard yards in and learn and apply things step-by-step, step. so everything that we're doing, we're not jumping out of our envelope of skill significantly to do something on a patient, you know? Uh, that So that would be another point. And, but one more general point about, uh, you know, I wouldn't say it's a mistake, but maybe just a, a, an approach, um, would be how we learn to communicate uh, treatment plans and things and, and costings and, you know, options and things like that to patients. I think this is something that younger dentists in particular and understandably. So this one, I definitely relate to. I was the same, um, come out and like, well, you know, at school we were charging this to do that. And now I'm saying, Oh, here's an option. And it costs you like 6,000. Here's the one that costs you 15,000. And here's one for 25,000, you know, like how can I say that to a patient? You know, um, but it's learning to
1: – So how, how do you get better to, at that? How do you get better at case presentation?
0: Yeah. I, I Well, there's one element that I get it, that when we're younger, we're also worried about what does the patient actually think, you know, of, of us and our experience. And, you know, I myself, apparently, I'm a little younger looking than my age. but comes in handy now that I'm older. But when I was younger, you know, you're always like, this patient thinks I'm a child delivering this treatment plan, you know. So, so it affects how we how we think. Um, so that, of course, that brings its own challenge. Being younger, but uh, a lot of guys are post grad now as well, which means that they come in with a bit more life experience and they have a more mature presence about them, which is fantastic for dentistry. But I think the main tip that I would give is to not second guess actual science and what's best for our patients. And be very open and uh, in delivering options for our patients, whether or not, uh, and not make the judgment of you know, what they may want to do or what they may afford or not afford. Sometimes that will really surprise you, what people can afford. And other times we have to just have that radar up of, I'm not going to go down a path here if the patient is uncomfortable with it or if it's much more than what's within their realm because it might make them feel more worried, you know. Um, And, you know, that may not always be the picture of how a patient is dressed or, you know, whatever other judgments one might be prone to making. So I tend to start uh, advanced consultations with making a broad overview of like their situation first listening to the patient. I think it's really important. Uh, so I try to just let them talk. Firstly, as they talk, you know, my nurse can be making a lot of points. A lot of those points may be things that I would want to ask them, you know, but now it's become a connection, a relationship building rather than a doctor in a white coat saying, and now tell me the answer to this question as succinctly as you can. Uh, you know, so, it lets them start to, you know, get some of the nerves out of the way, and, and it, and you know, they'll see that you're genuinely listening to them, and then that'll open the door for you to add some more questions in there. So then, before you even looked at the patient's mouth, you can say, "Well, I see that you know your concerns are these things." Already, they understand. Okay, you get what I'm saying. All right. So, what do you think? You know, um, and then you say, "Well." having a quick look here, you know, I'm just going to, you know, probe the gum here and take an x-ray here and so on. Having a quick look, it's not actually as bad as you thought it is. And, you know, we can sort these things with some of these approaches. Or, yeah, I can see what you were saying. You know, it's definitely very advanced uh, gum disease or very advanced caries and so on. And we probably do need to look at, uh, you know, some sort of replacement option. So what I'm going to do is just run through Some of the options, like very briefly, roughly what they might cost to think of something like this and what it looks like, you know. So you can quickly get through some ideas, engage their response, and then um, hone in on what might be a path that suits that patient. So neither of you are wasting a lot of time and effort talking about things that are either going over their head or not what they're interested in. Uh, and you know this is the funny thing about dentistry you know we can approach a case with different levels and of course some are superior than to others in certain ways uh, and they all have their pros and cons Uh, but we need to obviously see what the patient's objectives are and if we're meeting the patient's objectives and giving them a couple of options they'll understand if something is expensive or beyond their uh, capacity financially or they might say well that's I get the what why I need that or why I want that rather than this so I'm going to make the finances happen you know um so yeah a little bit of a sort of uh, that that would be the path that I sort of take in every consultation it sort of lets the patient express to you what their concerns are opens a bit of rapport um and you get a get you give them a rough summary of different options and then go in so often you know By this stage, I haven't even necessarily done, say, a charting, right? Say, okay, now what we can do is do a thorough examination and, you know, make a proper plan for this sort of concept for you. But, you know, having said that, it's a different sort of practice. People generally come in with with complex things, you know? Uh, So obviously, when someone comes in with a healthy mouth, we don't need to do all of those things. But I was more addressing the question of, uh, you know, talking about big ideas or big costs with patients and, you know, not necessarily needing to be too self-conscious about that, but giving the, you know, what would you want to tell your own uh, parents, you know? Uh, so we can at least let the patients know what their options are and then let them decide from there.
1: Yeah. And I, and I think as uh, as someone uh, joining the workforce, you know, having someone with a couple missing teeth, maybe some cavities and maybe a bit of gum disease. That's a big conversation to have. So I I think the tips that you named there are fantastic.
0: Yeah, they also it gives you a chance to for them to understand the gravity of some of the things. You know, like you're saying, I hear your concern that you want to do this and that. But my main concern is your gum disease needs to be under control. Like that's the foundation of the whole thing. And we can't work on that before this. Like so they see, oh, okay, so you hear me, and you want to do these things for me, but you're telling me that I like this is more important, or this has to be sorted first, you know. And that works better than just sort of giving a random bunch of items, and you know, <laughs> and the patient goes away and say, "Well, that's not even what I wanted," because they didn't they didn't understand what they need.
1: Hmm. Yeah, they weren't listening.
0: They weren't listening because, but but I would say because. We weren't finding how we need to talk to that person most of the time. Sometimes you're just like, you, you're not listening there, <laughs> you know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, that, those are great tips there. And now focusing more on maybe a new grad dentist, someone in the first couple years out, they're looking to place their first implant. What skills do you think are integral before placing your first implant?
0: Um, I think uh, flat management and suturing is really important. You know, and, you know, when, you, when you're in the world of implants, you actually do very, very little surgical procedure for extractions because, you know, bone preservation is, is so crucial. Um, so, you know, I do surgeries all day, but unless it's a wisdom tooth, you know, a tooth isn't being surgically removed, you know, but I recognize that in the earlier years, a lot of the surgical experience that we're getting is surgical extraction of broken down teeth. Uh, so, you know, if that's, if that's the way that, that we gain that experience, just that idea of flap management and being good at suturing, bringing tissue together is really, really important uh, because then later you realize how slight differences in, you know, incision uh, design or how we manage a flap or how we bring things together makes a big outcome in terms of whether we cause some recession or some tissue loss or some tissue gain or the nuances of where we place an incision, how it affects a tissue loss or gain around an implant, around a simple implant and things like that. So um, being, I guess, methodical and accurate in our soft tissue management with flaps and sutures, rather than being of the mindset, oh yeah, I've done surgical extractions, and here's my periosteal elevator, I'm just shoving it down, you know, and then I'm cracking this. I see some people, for example, early on, working much rougher than they need to. And they haven't realized how gently and delicately you can actually do these things, you know, Um, that would, that would be one thing. Uh, And the other is really about uh, learning enough to understand what, what a case requires and then doing good case selection. So uh, if you have a good understanding of, of the discipline, but you don't yet have the skills for all the aspects of the discipline, that's a good thing. Because now you can gradually add skills, but you will know this is a case I can do and it it needs this sort of approach. This is a case I need assistance with or this is a case I need to refer. Uh, But in terms of, you know, what would be a suitable implant case, usually, you know, soft tissue would be uh, good quality. There wouldn't be sort of recession or aesthetic factors in the aesthetic zone. Whereas once you raise a flap, you probably cause more damage than before. Um, And it would be where we have a good uh, thick envelope of bone uh, or volume of bone around the implant as well, uh, away from vital anatomy, you know, so not in a short space about the nerve where we haven't developed the feel of how we drill into bone with as many hundreds of cases yet or whatever, right? So, um, yeah, I think where there is good soft and hard tissue and there's no major aesthetic demand, uh, placing an implant is not a difficult thing to do, you know, like a root canal is much harder than an implant, you know, or getting the margins of your crown so beautiful. I mean, it took me more years to prepare those things more beautiful, you know, but it's understanding that that's the requirement of this case and how to go about it.
1: So when you're, when you're tired at the end of your wisdom tooth extraction, make sure that you have a bit of energy left to practice that suturing.
0: That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And that's the kind of stuff that you can do a lot in your own time as well. You know, you can do short courses where you can do uh, practice flat management and sutures and pick up these skills more in your own time because they'll apply to so many different things down the track.
1: Yeah, right. Good advice. Um, So we're just going to kind of wrap it up here. So I have a couple of final questions for you. If you could go back to your early years to get where you are faster, what would you change if you would change anything?
0: Yeah, you know, I'm going to be all cliche and say I wouldn't change a thing. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, I think uh, going back to my earlier years, I I would have access to more information and, and better education, you know. So I would be able to uh, make less mistakes and... Um, probably learn things a little bit earlier but I I don't think that I would recommend that I, I should have done it faster you know I think there's a natural pace to doing things if you're going to do them well and if you want to be at the other end of that drill or that scalpel you know how fast do you want that dentist to have reached that point of the procedure they're doing for you you know because so much of it comes down to the little things that you pick up over the years not like catastrophes small things that weren't as good as they should have been that would probably be my advice in terms of pace oh the other is uh in terms of more the outlook to dentistry is not to put uh, undue pressure on yourself to have to meet certain timelines for achieving certain skills you know like we all have some of us are just faster at learning certain things than others uh and we, have, we might also find different niches that we're better at or more interested in. And luckily, dentistry is broad enough to give a pathway for different niches and interests as well. And um, also not to try and produce too much unnecessarily. You know, I'm not talking about uh, sort of unnecessary production in terms of unethical or unnecessary treatment. That obviously is... You know, that shouldn't even find its way into our thinking, obviously. Uh, I'm talking about thinking, oh, you know, I'll squeeze that patient in as well or I'll work that extra hour or, you know, uh, just, just putting yourself under pressure to try and fit more in. I think that can be more mentally and physically fatiguing and that will start to have an influence on the quality of your work so a couple of cases over the years where you know I've scratched my head and thought how did I place those implants that way like I that just doesn't reflect on the rest of my work at all you know Um, and I think you know what in those months I was just doing too much and then probably that day you're running late and then that patient has to be done a bit faster and There's other stresses going on, and you realize, oh, you sort of weren't orienting yourself with all the angulations or the stages that you normally do, and you didn't do it uh, to the standard that you're happy with. You know, as long as your practices are equipped for it, give yourself a little more time. You know, there's no need to be, uh, and that's the other thing that I see when I mentor uh, colleagues as well, just trying to be faster than you need to be, (laughs) you know. So over the years, of course, I would say you get faster. But I'm trying to focus more on getting better in that time than getting faster with my time.
1: Yeah, well said. Really well said. Uh, be, being fair to yourself, that's kind of what I hear, the overarching.
0: Yeah, yeah. And also, you know, it's, it's also fairer to your patients. You know, it's, uh, you know, sometimes we feel the pressure putting certain uh, expectations on us, and we're just trying to help out, but then it causes problems, you know? So when you have a certain approach, that's what you're comfortable with. That's what you advise. Just follow that. Uh, Take the time that you need. Don't try to expedite it. And if the patient wants a different path, you know, let them go somewhere else.
1: (laughs) Imagine you could teach every single graduating dentist one thing to help them change their careers or to make it better.
0: What would it be? Wow. Man, that that one, you you had to give me like uh, some time for this question. question. (laughs) Always learn, like be committed to learning, but learn at your own pace and don't try to mirror what a colleague is doing or, you know, feel pressures that we see of people, you know, post this sort of thing on Instagram or people are doing this or that, you know. These things shouldn't even come into our thinking, also, to think that, you know, the grass is, you know, always greener, on you know, it's not. Everyone's going through challenges. Everyone's got, uh, you know, issues that they're, they're dealing with or have dealt with in their career. So, you know, just take things at your own pace. Be committed to learning and uh, understand that, you know, as you learn some of your own interests and those doors open for you and you learn more about those things, that'll be a new you know, wealth of experience and richness that you'll be bringing into someone's practice or to to your own practice. You don't need to match what someone else is doing. So that would be one. Uh, and you ask for one. So maybe that's it. But I think coupled with that is the idea that uh, uh, be be uh, good to your colleagues. Uh, you know, just like you're being good to yourself, be good to your colleagues. You know, don't uh, don't buy into that competitive mentality. There's there's enough patience in the world for all of us. And there's enough knowledge to be beyond what any of us can learn. <laughs> so, so share it around, you know, collaborate. And when when you have the opportunity to support a colleague in some way, you know, uh, go ahead and do that. Because I, I, I think maybe the industry is going a little in this direction. But I've certainly seen things and experienced things where there is a competitive drive in some people that drives them to try to put down another colleague, you know? So I would say when patients uh, with me and they're, you know, making a fuss about another practitioner, I always try to, uh, of course, I'm going to tell them facts about whatever it is that I'm observing, but I always try to bring that situation down. You know, uh, if I know that practitioner or something of their skill, I'll say something good about them. um, And, try to, you know, that, you know, there's no need to try and make someone else's day or week or year worse. Uh, We're all in this together. We're helping patients. So, you know, let's uh, create a supporting environment for each other as well. So there you go. One clinical thing and one philosophical thing.
1: Love it. And I think that's a great way to end it off. So thank you so much for joining me, Dr. Misak Habibi.
0: My pleasure. It was a a pleasure to talk to you and uh, yeah, catch up again at some point in the future
1: all well do, thanks.
0: See you, buddy. It's 2022, a time where cloud-based software is enhancing every aspect of our lives. So why not leverage those same capabilities in something we use every day? Our dental practice management software. Imagine a platform rethought from the ground up, intuitive and intelligent, using the possibility of today's technology for your patients and your business. A solution that optimizes our daily workflows, creating the edge that modern dentists need to stay competitive and connected. Principal Practice Management Software is this solution. Efficient, intelligent, intuitive. Because it's 2022 and you expect better. Go to principal.dental to learn more.